Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Thank you for being here and joining us live stream as well. I just want to welcome you. It's the time of our service where we open God's Word. If you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, our focus this morning will be on verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. As we have been studying this letter over the last few months, we've been saying that it highlights the fact that we are aliens and strangers in this world, that all believers are in the world but not of the world. We have been called out of the world. We are citizens in heaven. We are citizens here. We have a dual citizenship, but we are citizens in heaven. And we live in the midst of hostility. We've pointed that out as we've been going through 1 Peter. Just like these believers that we are talking about and being written to in this book, the original readers of this book, were living in hostility and they needed encouragement. And I really believe that is a theme of this book. Peter is seeking to encourage these Christians who are facing so much hostility and so much discouragement. And that is what he has sought to do, I believe, in getting their feet, their spiritual feet planted on firm ground. And that's for us as well. We need the message of this letter as well. Look at 1 7, 1 Peter 1 7, just to remind you, and I recognize I go back to these periodically, but I want you to keep the big picture of the book, of the letter in mind as we go through. 1 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, and that's what's happening, their faith is being tested by fire. True, true faith is a tested faith, by the way, because it's proven to be imperishable. That was the message of that first chapter. But it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, flip over there to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. This is for your testing. This is for the testing of your faith as though some strange thing were happening to you. 1 Peter 5, 8, chapter 5, go down to verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. And I love this statement knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Other Christians are going through this. You're not alone. After, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's not wasted. It's not wasted. God uses it to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know that the most effective tools of the enemy are doubt and discouragement. The two big Ds, right? Doubt and discouragement. In fact, in Ephesians 6, the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation, the purpose is to protect your mind 
to put on the helmet, to protect your mind from the things that would cause you doubt and the things that would discourage you. And that is something we're all prone to. And I think even the most mature Christians experience great trials of discouragement and doubt at times. And sometimes you think you're the only one experiencing that. You think you're the only one going through that. That no one else knows what it's like to be discouraged and have doubts like I'm having. That, that to doubt God's goodness and to doubt God's faithfulness. And you feel defeated. And then 5.9, but the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not the only one. Spurgeon, who most of us, if you're a, especially if you're an evangelical pastor and you have any books at all, you've got a book by Spurgeon, I'm sure. Spurgeon was the prince of preachers. Spurgeon wrote incredible volumes and he preached incredible number of sermons in the 1850s in London, England. Here's a quote from a sermon that he preached in 1866. I, quote, I am subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get such extremes of wretchedness that I go through. And he could say that throughout lots of his ministry. That's just one sermon. Another pastor from the 1920s wrote this, you seem, writing a letter to a friend, you seem to imagine that I have no ups and downs, but only lofty stretches of spiritual attainment and with unbroken joy. That's what you think about me. But then he goes on to say, but by no means. I am often perfectly wretched and everything appears most murky. End of quote. Boy, that is... That is real, isn't it? We all face that. We all face that. And if we focus on discouragement, then we're going to get discouraged. No doubt about it. And if we focus on a defeated attitude, we're going to feel defeated. And the whole point of Peter is trying to encourage these believers to not be discouraged. To give them hope in the midst of the trials and the difficulties that they are facing. If we focus on Christ, Peter is going to say, that is where we will find victory and we will find hope. One of my favorite verses in, in the Bible on progressive sanctification, what do I mean by that? On, the, on spiritual growth. Rod, this is how you grow. You want to grow, then you gaze at Christ, and you gaze at Christ a lot. 2 Corinthians 3.18, write it down. You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, just speaking to the intimacy, looking at Christ intimately, beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We are continually, that verse says, continually progressing in our transformation to becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Just meditate on that verse. Think about that verse. The intimacy of looking at yourself in a mirror. Look at Christ that way. And the more you gaze at Him and learn from Him, the more you become like Him. And that is what the focus has been with Peter. Just trying to get them to always think about Christ. 
And that's what he wants us to do as well. You're familiar with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. In other words, chapter 11, all of these great saints of the faith. They're the ones that are telling us it's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it. They're the witnesses that the life of faith is worth it. They're not watching us run the race. That would be discouraging for them. No, we, they are our witnesses to the fact that the race is worth it. He says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's our hope. That's our hope. The triumphant Christ, who though he suffered much, he was victorious. That is our hope. And Peter isn't going to say, look at this group and look at that group and look at this persecutor and look at that persecutor and have this strategy for dealing with this or that. He says, you look to Jesus. You look to Christ. You gaze at Christ. You fix your eyes, as the writer of Hebrews says, you fix your eyes on Christ. He was tested. He was suffered. He is our example. He is our encouragement to keep on keeping on. That's how Peter has addressed this issue. Certainly, he's giving them strategies in the midst of persecution. But we're going to see in the passage today, he, he is all about the victory of Christ. And to remind them that though he was tested and suffered much, he was victorious in that. God, God turned all that around. He used all that bad for good. 1 Peter 2.21, if you want to look at some other verses with me. Since Christ also suffered. See that in 2.21? He suffered, leaving you an example. 1 Peter 4.1, Christ has suffered in the flesh. Chapter 4, verse 1, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 1 Peter 4.12, I read it earlier, but beloved, do not be surprised at that fiery ordeal that comes for your testing. Verse 13, but the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. And then 5.1, therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. I too, Peter, am a partaker of those sufferings. That is the theme of this book. That is the theme of 1 Peter. Living in a hostile world and dealing with the hostilities of the world. And it has a contemporary message to us as things become more hostile toward us as well. And this is what this passage is about this morning. Peter is calling us to look at Christ and look, look at the ultimate victory that he won through his suffering. The triumph that he experienced as a result of his suffering. It's, it's an encouragement to us. That's why Peter writes it. Our Lord experienced this. And God turned all of that into a great triumph 
And because you're in Christ, you will triumph with him. It will be worth it. It will be worth it for you as well. Look at 3.17. We read this verse last week. 3.17. First Peter 3.17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And Christ is our example of that. He suffered for, what, for doing what was right, not for what was wrong. He was without sin. You know, because we think it's unjust to suffer like that. We think I've got my rights and nobody should impede on my rights and, and step on my rights and I should never have to suffer unjustly. Well, sometimes you may be called to suffer unjustly. And he says, if God should will it so, you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. If that's God's will for you, he says in that verse, make sure it's for doing what is right. If, it's, if you suffer for doing what's wrong, that's called correction. If you suffer for doing what's wrong, God will probably chastise you. Hebrews 12 said he disciplines those he loves. But suffering for doing what is right, that's what Christ has done. And I, and I, I want to tell you, we're coming into a difficult passage this morning. I just want to tell you that. This is probably, it's definitely the most difficult passage in the book of 1 Peter. But some would even say it's the most difficult passage in the entire Bible. Every commentator I read just seemed to want to throw his hands up in some parts of it. Every commentator I read said this is the most difficult passage in the whole Bible or something to that effect. And it is hard. It's a very difficult passage. And this morning I... I want to take us into just the easy part of it, the first verse, the easy part, and jump into the harder part next week. But look at verse 18. You see, for Christ also died for sin. See that? Just that statement. Then look down at verse 22 who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. See that? You start where? You start on earth and you end up in heaven. See that? The in-between stuff we got to sort through. But you got that. If you get those two things right there, you got the main point of what Peter is trying to say to the suffering believers. There's hope. He died for sins, but he is at the right hand of the Father. And all things are subjection to him. So I mean, it's, you see the hope that he's trying to communicate in these verses 18 through 22. God turned it all around. God turned 18 around to 22. And that's the hope he's going to try to communicate to these suffering believers. God can turn your suffering around the same way. There's hope in it. Remember last week I, uh, I gave you, uh, I told you in 315, verse three, chapter 3, verse 15, that we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and always be ready to give a, an account of the hope that is in us. Well, that's what I want to do this morning with verse 18. I want to give you, I want you to be able to give an account of the hope that is in you by sharing 
and walking you through verse 18. And then we'll pick up 19, 20, and 21, and 22 next week. Let me read these to you again. You'll see why I say they're difficult. I'll highlight, in fact, some of the parts that are difficult. Verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all. Got that. She just, the just for the unjust, we get that. So that he might bring us to God, we get that. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Hmm, what does that mean? In which also he went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison. What in the world? Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the destruction, during the construction, excuse me, of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. What? Baptism now saves us? Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I get that. So you see, it's got some tough parts in it. This morning, I want to... I want to help you have an, be able to give an account for the hope that is in you by taking you to verse 18. And we call this his victorious, each of these are going to be victorious something. This will be the victorious suffering. He had a victorious suffering. And this is a great summary. This verse is a great summary of our gospel. If you need a verse to take somebody to, to show them of the hope that is in why you have the hope that is in you, if you need a verse to take somebody to, to share the gospel with them in a compact, concise way, this verse is your verse. Verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. Now stop there for a moment. From a human standpoint, we would all agree that the death of Christ looked anything but victorious. People who were standing around watching it were, how did we get here? How did this happen? How did we get from the daily crowds and all the wonderful things that were going on in ministry and for his disciples especially standing there and thinking about what happened? Even though he had told them this was going to happen, they, that was out of their minds. This is the reality, and they were fearful. They were maybe disillusioned. Maybe they were scared. Many of them fled. Peter, prior to the crucifixion, denied Christ. I think others may have as well. I mean, there was so much fear and disbelief. They wept and they scattered. And they were devastated as they sat and watched him suffer on that cross. They just simply dispersed. His friends forsook him. His enemies had their way that day. The enemies had their way. The Jewish leaders got their way. They got rid of him, so they thought. They got rid of this one they believed was claiming to be a Messiah, this false Messiah. We got him out of the way. He was, he was taking the crowds away from us, and now he is out of the picture, and he's in their minds. He was a blasphemer. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. How more blasphemous can you get than that? And they were glad, and they looked like they were winning. They looked like they were winning. 
The Rome was killed. Romans put him on the cross. The, you recall, Pilate did not want to put him on the cross, but the pressure, uh, the, the potential for a riot, he didn't want that among the Jews if he didn't do it. Even the potential when Jesus said he was a king, but his kingdom was not of this world, that could be a threat to Caesar, so that gave some justification. But even the Romans could look at it and say they had their way. And today the world looks at his death and just think, thinks, well, that's just a plan that went, went south. Things just didn't work out the way he and his followers wanted them to work out. He was a victim. He was a victim. However, we know that it was the greatest victory that ever took place. So let me just take you through some of the words in 1 Peter 3.18 that I think you will find encouraging as we review these gospel truths. For Christ, for connects you. Because Christ, you don't suffer for doing, verse 17, you don't suffer for doing what is wrong. Make sure when you're suffering it's because you're doing what is right. Because that's what Christ did. For Christ. Because Christ. Verse 18. So there's the connection. He encouraging them in their suffering. Also, meaning, in addition to someone else, for Christ also, believers, you may die and you may suffer just like he did. He's not asking you to do something that he was not willing to do. Christ, Christ also died. Keep that in mind. And suffer for what's doing right. Died. You could also put the word suffered in there. You might have a translation. ESV, I believe, puts the word suffered in there. Christ suffered. Uh, Christ also suffered for sins. It's, it's the same idea. He died. His suffering led to a death. It's an ultimate suffering. You can suffer and not die, but he suffered the ultimate. He died. He suffered to the point of dying. In Hebrews, uh, the writer says, you have not suffered to the point of death like Christ did. See, there's a con so it's not just he suffered, he died in that suffering. As a result of that suffering, he experienced the ultimate suffering. It says, for Christ also died for sins. Remember the angel said to Joseph, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is, that, is why, that is what his name means, just Savior. That is who he is. That is why he came to be the Savior, to die for sins. He will save people from their sins, not their own sins, not his own sins. Understand that. He died for the sins of others. Look at 2.22. Back up to chapter 2, verse 22. He says he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. You could, also put, you could also say that part of the verse he is saying that Jesus, he was offered as a sin offering. Same idea. Christ was offered as a sin offering, as a payment for sin. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. 
And that's what Christ did. Listen, if you deny the book of Genesis, it's interesting. You deny Genesis 3, for example, that talks about the fall of man when the human problem comes into the world, the fall of man where man sins and it infects the entire human race. One man's sin, Romans tells us, all have sinned. We all are dead in our sin. If you reject Genesis 3, then John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, is a farce. We don't need Jesus if there's not a sin problem. We don't need God to do something and bringing someone into the world, sending his son into the world to die if there's no sin problem. That is the problem, is sin. And Jesus was offered as the sin offering. He paid the penalty of sin. Once for all, notice that statement, once for all. He died one time. Not a repeated event. You don't do this every week in a mass. You don't do this every week in a, in, in a church service in bringing sacrifices. We don't do that. We have one once and for all sacrifice that was made, and that was Christ. Imagine the Jews hearing this. Once for all, they keep in mind, every year, 250,000 animals sacrificed every year, over and over and over again. There was never enough blood to take away sin. And you say, and, and for them to hear, once for all, really? Because all they knew was, a sacrifice is needed, a sacrifice is needed, a sacrifice is needed. And now we say, no, once for all. Once for all, not to be repeated. Sufficient for all. All of those Old Testament lambs were pictures of the one final sacrifice. He is a better sacrifice, Hebrews says. He is the Lamb of God. Once for all, this echoes the statement from the cross. It is finished. <laughs> it's done. In Judaism, the priests never thought their job was done. They were butchers, constantly butchering animals. And never could they say, sin is done. The enough blood was never shed. It just simply covered things until the true sacrifice came, the once and for all sacrifice came, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to take you into Hebrews just for a moment. Hold your hand in 1 Peter. Find Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, he says this about Christ. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like, like those other high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, why? Because he's sinless, and then for the sins of the people. He doesn't have to do that daily, because he did this once for all when he offered himself up. One time. Go to chapter 9, verse 24. Chapter 9, verse 24. 
First, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, see that? Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Verse 26, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And go, to chapter, and go down to verse 28. Verse 28. Just skip a verse and go, So Christ also, <clears throat> having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. That's his second coming. Second time he comes, it's not about sin. That's what he's been taken care of. It's going to be a second coming when he will reign to those who eagerly await him. Go to chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 12. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. No other sacrifice is needed. We don't bring an offering to atone for our sins. We look to the one who did it once and for all, for all time, who gave his life. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Notice the next word. For Christ also died for sins once for, well, let me just add this. Once for all, let me tell you about the word all just for a minute. You've got to understand this word all. In the past, you would take a sacrifice. You'd take a sacrifice for your family, maybe, or there would be a sacrifice for a group of people or a sacrifice for uh, the nation on the Day of Atonement. Now this all, this all means that it's, it's, it's all who would come to him. It's, it's all people from all nations. It's not just a family group, not just one nation, not just a group of, one group of people, but now it's for all who come to Him. John 6.37 says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. We preach the gospel to the whole world. We tell the whole world that Christ is the sacrifice for your sin. Christ is the once and for all sacrifice for your sin. He paid your sin for you. You don't have to pay for it yourself. And that's the next point, the just for the unjust. Look at 1 Peter 3.18 again, the just for the unjust. Vicarious, you hear that word sometimes, vicarious? Vicarious in place of substitute you hear those words the just for the unjust he was just we are unjust he was innocent we are guilty he was righteous perfectly righteous we are unrighteous the just for the unjust the innocent lamb of god paid the penalty for the guilty the sinless for the sinful 
Go back up to chapter 2, verse 24, First Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. See that? He bore our sins in his body. It's a sacrifice. He sacrificed his life. He was a sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you can just write this verse down. This is an important verse though. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, Jesus who was sinless was treated like he'd committed every single sin that had ever been committed in the whole world. It wasn't that Jesus, the Holy One, became a sinner. That's not what it's saying. It's he is treated like a sinner. Like that lamb, that lamb who you sacrificed wasn't a sinner, but you treated him like he was a sinner. It's the transfer of your sin to that innocent lamb. And that's how substitution That's what substitution is. He who knew no sin became sin. My sin is all piled up, all the sin of all the world piled up and put on Jesus and judged. He took our place. He took the judgment that belongs to us. The high priest in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the Holy of Holies. He'd have this blood sacrifice to atone for the people's sins. And he'd have to atone for his own sin first. That lamb was taking the judgment of the people. That was what the picture was. Christ never had to pay for his own sin. He is the only one qualified to go to the cross because he was perfect. It required a perfect sacrifice. No, no man or woman, no human being is perfect. Only the God-man could be the just one could pay for our sins. He was God. And therefore, he's the eternal God. Therefore, his sacrifice is an eternal sacrifice. And the reason for all of this, notice the reason for all of this in verse 18 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, so that he could bring us to God. Because that is what we need, access to God. The Bible says we're all sinners, and sometimes we think sin is just a failure or a mistake, or a sin is just me not living up to my potential, or sin is just some kind of uh, uh, bad habit, or something like that. But being a sinner means I've offended a holy God, and that I am literally at war with God. I have broken His law. I have gone astray. I have gone my own way. All of these verses speak of that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And none of us, you do not come into this world with access to God. No one has access to God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And none of us is able to come into the presence of a holy God. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you. And I can't do anything to change that. I can't do anything to, break, to, to reconcile that. I can't reconcile that separation. There's nothing I can do. 
You heard the theological word propitiation. Propitiation means satisfaction. Jesus propitiated the wrath of God. He satisfied the wrath of God. It's a theological word. It's an important theological word. He appeased the wrath of God. He did it by satisfying God's righteous standard for a perfect perfection. He lived the perfect life. He satisfied it by God's demand for justice. The soul that sins must die. He appeased the wrath of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God. That's propitiation. He satisfied God's verdict on humanity. Jesus satisfied the demands of God's law perfectly. And those who trust in his death alone for their salvation can be brought to God. The word bring in, you see that in 3.18, or bring us, so that he could bring us to God. See that word? Prosago, to bring in, means right or access. It's a verb, um, a, a sacrifice for, to God for reconciliation. That's the idea, to bring us together to God. Um, in secular Greek, it, it meant to bring a person to some big shot. That's basically what the word meant. In, in, other, in other words, a, a, pros, a prosagosis was in the court of a king, and he would be one whom you had to go past to, get an, to be able to go into the presence of the king. In other words, if you wanted introduction to the king, you had to go through that guy. You had to be admitted by him into the presence of the king. He determined who could get in and who should be kept out. And Christ is our introducer. He is the one who gives us the right and brings us into the presence of God. And here's a passage where that word is used. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Listen to this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, through whom also we have obtained our introduction. That's the word our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, nobody gets to heaven without Jesus. Understand that. If you have a plan for going to heaven that does not include Jesus, then you're not going to heaven. See, a lot of people say, well, I got a way that I want to relate to God. I got a way that I want to be right with God. I don't need Jesus. I got my own spirituality no, you don't have Jesus in that plan. You're not going to heaven because you don't have anybody to introduce you, a sinner, into the presence of a holy God. He's like a customs agent. He's like that customs agent you see at the airport checking your passport. He wants to know if it's been stamped by his blood before he lets you go, before he lets you pass through. So nobody's getting in without him. He's the one that removed the barrier. He's the one that gives us access to God. And he's the one that can bring us into his presence because he dealt with the sin problem. He dealt with the sin problem. And it's a reason Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. It's the reason 
Luke writes in Acts 4, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Hebrews calls him the author of our salvation, calls him, the word could be used, trailblazer. Basically, he, he was the forerunner. It's kind of like he went where we could not go. He, tra- he blazed a trail for us into the presence of a holy God because we couldn't find the way. None of us can find the way to God on our own. Jesus has to take us there. It's through Him and through Him alone. So how do you come to Christ to have Him introduce you to God? You come with a sense of your sin because that's what the cross is about. That's why Jesus came, to save you from your sins. Sin is the issue. Sin is what keeps you from God. You come with a sense that you're separated from God because of your sin. You recognize that you are not, you do not measure up to the holiness of God, the holy standard of God. You recognize that you're a sinner and that you have, and that you have a deep desire to be forgiven for your sin, to be cleansed from your sin. Matthew uses the word poor in spirit, and that's the humility. That's the recognition that I can't save myself. I need him. I can't make myself a better person. I need him. I can't make myself right with God. I need him. I desire to turn from my sin. I desire to know God. I want to be reconciled to God. I'm an enemy with God's. I want to be reconciled to God. I don't want to be at war with God anymore. I want to be, have the peace that Romans 5, 1 and 2 say. I want to have that peace with God by putting my faith in the peace offering, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner and I desire to turn from my sin. I want access to God and I believe that access comes through Jesus Christ and Him alone. There's no other way. Your works will not get you there because you're a sinner and your works are sinful works because they're motivated by a sinful heart. So, that's an invitation to you. It's also for you and I as believers. That's your, that's your giving a defense for the hope that is in you. You tell somebody this today, this week. Read this verse. This verse has got everything you need to present the gospel to somebody. Let's do it. This is what the message that our world needs to hear. This was a victorious suffering because it accomplished what nothing else could accomplish, and that is it gave us access to God in God's very presence. It gave us access to a holy God when we're such unholy people. Then there's the rest of verse 18. And like I told you, there's lots of different views on that verse. But let me just close by saying, basically what Peter is saying is that Jesus really died and that Jesus' spirit was alive, his human spirit was alive. And he's going to go on and say that spirit then went and made a proclamation someplace. He's, what, you know what he's going to do? He's going to tell us what Jesus did between the crucifixion and the resurrection, three days. He's going to tell us what Jesus did in those three days. He was not in limbo. 
He was very active in what he was doing. And only Peter tells us this. Well, there's alluded to in other places, I guess, but we'll get to the hard part next week. But today, if you don't know Christ, I pray that 318 of 1 Peter, God uses that to speak to your heart this morning, to move you towards putting your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And we praise you for it. And we thank you for the victorious death of Christ that bought our salvation for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.